Good morning, church. Are y'all ready to receive God's word today? Praise God. I'm excited to be able to share it with you today. We've been in this series called Facts. We've been exploring different characteristics of God. And as I was preparing today, I had an idea from God. I got with our communications director. Her name is Taylor. She's over social media, our website, the app. She does graphics. She does an amazing job. But I got with her, and earlier this week, she posted on Facebook a question asking people to fill in the blank, God is. And I want you to consider that today. Answer that question within yourself. What is the first thing that comes to mind for you? God is what? Now, I want you to remember your response, okay? Because we're going to revisit this at some point in the message today, okay? But I have a few thoughts for your consideration today. Oh, actually, before that, I actually want to recap the series. So at the beginning of the series, week one, Pastor Nathan, he, he talked about how God is strategic, how God is in charge of the outcomes. Our job is obedience, Week two, Pastor Michael taught on Father's Day, and he encouraged our fathers to cultivate relationships with their children that point them back to Jesus. And week three, last week, Pastor Gary, he reminded us that in the face of our failures, God is a restorer. And I want to encourage you, if you missed any of those messages, go back and listen to them. You can find them in the normal places, our app, our website, on our YouTube page. But I have a few thoughts for your consideration today, and they all flow from this fact that God is holy, that God is a holy God. So we're going to dive into that today. But before we do, I want to acknowledge that there are many examples in the Bible of God speaking to people through dreams and visions. Now, a dream is as we understand it. You're sleeping and you have a dream. You might recall the story of Joseph. God gave him two dreams before he was sold into slavery by his brothers. But a vision is different. A vision is like a dream, but the one receiving it is awake. God actually puts them in some kind of a supernatural trance and allows them to see something revelatory. He gives them a vision and he reveals something to them. Now, I'm explaining what a vision is today because in my preparation, I was drawn to two visions recorded in the pages of Scripture. One given to the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament and the other given to the apostle John in the New Testament. Now, both the visions are very, very similar, meaning that God allowed Isaiah and John to see the same thing. Now, to begin today, I want to actually read John's account in the book of Revelation. Now, don't get nervous in the service because we're reading from Revelations, okay? All scripture is God-breathed. It's useful for, for rebuking, correcting, and, and training in righteousness, so we'll be okay today, all right? Now, what I really want you to see is in chapter 4, verse 8, but we're going to read a few verses earlier so we can get some context, Okay? We're going to start at verse 1. It says, After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here. 
and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. We're going to drop to verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in the front and in the back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. In our main verse, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. I'm going to read that again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Church, I thought this was very interesting that God has these heavenly creatures declaring his holiness. I mean, of all the things that God could have on repeat in heaven, he has these creatures declaring that he is holy. Why not have them declare God is rich in mercy? Why not have them declare that he is rich in grace? Why not have them declare that he is a God of peace? Why not have them saying, God is love, God is love, God is love, who was and is and is to come? No, church. Instead, he has them declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I think that there's something to that, church. I think that's significant. Could it be that he would not be a loving God if he wasn't a holy God to begin with? Could it be that he would not be rich in grace and mercy if it wasn't for his holiness? Think about it, church. Do you think that God would be rich in grace and mercy if he was unholy? Do you think if he was an unholy God that he would love his creation and love his people? God loves us with a holy love because he is a holy God. And this gives us an opportunity to talk about God's love for a moment. I want us to discover in scripture where we actually find it written for the first time that God loves his people. Now, we're actually introduced to God's love in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, in the creation story. But catch this, church, even though nowhere in Genesis, nowhere in the creation story does it actually say that God is love or that he loves his people or that he loves anyone. 
But we can pull from passages in the Bible like 1 John chapter 4, where, where we find it say, God is love, and not only that, that he loved us first, meaning so before we can even turn our hearts towards God, he already loved us. So using that scripture as a reference, that passage, we can conclude that God created us because of his love. So much so that he created us unique from all of creation. He created us in his image and in his likeness, which means he created us to resemble him and to reflect his character. We can come to the same conclusion using John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible, right? That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So if his love was the reason he sent Jesus to redeem the world, then his love is probably the reason he created the world, right? That makes sense? So again, church, we're introduced to, to God's love in Genesis because he created us because of his love. But it's not written anywhere in Genesis that God is love or that God loves his people. We actually don't find that in scripture until we get to Deuteronomy. Let's look at it. Chapter 4, verse 37. Because he loved your ancestors and chose their descendants after them. He brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength. So this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel. He's saying, because God loved your ancestors, who are the ancestors? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the children of Israel are descendants of those ancestors. Because of that, he brought you out of Egypt by his presence and his great strength. So this is actually the first place in the Bible we first find it written that God loves someone. And if we keep reading in Deuteronomy, we'll get to chapter 7, verse 8. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery from the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. So this is the second time in scripture we actually find it written that God loves people. So again, church, just to recap, we're introduced to God's love in Genesis because we understand that he created us because of his love. But nowhere in Genesis is it written that God is love or that God loves his people. We just read the first place in scripture that you find that in Deuteronomy, the fifth book in the Bible. Now, next I wanna show you in scripture where we first learn that God is holy. The word holy appears for the first time three books earlier in Exodus when God appears to Moses in the burning bush. You might recall the story. So he appears to Moses in the burning bush Moses re realizes that the bush, the bush is not burning up, so he goes to check it out. So we pick it up at verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, 
For the place where you are standing is holy ground. So this is the first place in scripture, church, that we find the word holy. And why was the ground holy? Because Moses was in the presence of a holy God. Verse 6, then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, what I'm trying to bring to your attention, church, is that from a written vantage point, we are actually introduced to the holy nature of God before we're introduced to him loving his people. Remember, all scripture is inspired by God. So God inspired man to record scripture, and as they were recording scripture, they actually wrote about him being holy before they wrote about him loving his people. Now, I think that's significant, church. I think there's something to that. Now, I haven't brought, brought you through this train of thought to suggest that we should elevate one character of God above another character of God, that we should elevate God's holiness above his love. No, that's not the conclusion I want us to come to today. I've brought you through this train of thought to suggest that we should remember that God is holy and not just that, but put the right respect on his holiness. In fact, repeat after me, God is holy and put the right respect on his holiness. Nah, you got to say that with a little bit more attitude. You got to say that with a little bit more attitude. One more time, put the right respect on his holiness. I like that. Now, let's look at the results of our post. So again, we made a post earlier this week on Facebook asking people to fill in the blank. God is. And hopefully you remember your response, okay? So good news. Everybody passed, okay? Everybody submitted something that was actually true about God. We did have one interesting submission. Someone said, God is shaking. I had to think about that for a second. And I took that to mean that God is shaking up some things. He's stirring up some things. We also had someone preaching in the comment section. They said, God is the great I am, the alpha and the omega, my redeemer, but most importantly, God is love. So they was preaching in the comment section. They didn't, they didn't just put one thing. They said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure they get this. Now, in first place, we had a three-way tie between God is love, God is good, and God is great. In second place, we had a two-way tie between God is awesome and God is everything. In third place, we had a two-way tie between God is powerful and God is faithful. And in fourth place, we actually had a five-way tie between God is forgiving, always on time, with me, the great I am, and God is holy. Now, by a show of hands, how many of you participating today, God is holy was your response by a show of hands? 
Okay, we got one. We got two. We got somebody in the back. Y'all was probably looking at my message notes. Y'all was cheating. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. But again, church, it's not about elevating one character of God above another, but we should remember that God is holy and we should put the right respect on his holiness. Now, God is holy. What does that really mean? Here's a definition for you. The holiness of God refers to the unparalleled majesty of his incomparable being. In him, there is not even the faintest trace of evil. He is impeccably, impeccably pure, without fault, and uncompromisingly just. He is blameless, timeless, and sinless. He is set apart. There is no one like him. Now, I'm going to read that one more time because I really want us to take that in. The holiness of God refers to the unparalleled majesty of his incomparable being. In him, there is not even the faintest trace of evil. He is impeccably pure, without fault, and uncompromisingly just. He is blameless, timeless, and sinless. He is set apart. There is no one like him. He's holy, church. Now, I want us to continue by reading 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Uh-oh. Go. Houston, we got a problem. God is actually calling us to be holy as he is holy. God has a standard, and that standard is holiness, and he is calling us to it. We who are with deceitful hearts, who have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Scripture says that our righteous deeds are like filthy garments, imperfect people, but still called to his holiness. Help us, God. Church, there is a huge gap between our character and the holiness of God. Can we agree? God did send help. He sent it in the form of Jesus. We're going to read Hebrews chapter 10. Now, chapter 10 for, uh, is a beautiful chapter in Hebrews. It talks about how the Old Testament sacrifices were a foreshadowing of Jesus' sacrifice. So we're going to read verse 9. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. What does that mean? What was first was the Old Testament sacrifices. And so that has been set aside to establish the second, which is Jesus' sacrifice, which was the ultimate sacrifice. Verse 10, and by that will, we have been made holy 
through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Thank you, Jesus. Right? Like, shoo. Let's look at verse 10 again. This is in the New American Standard Bible. It says, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, for all time. Now, I want to talk about sanctification. What is sanctification? Here's a definition for you. Sanctification is the process of being set apart as holy for God's use and God's purpose. So we were lost, far from God, separated by our sin. But God sends Jesus, he who knew no sin, the perfect lamb of God. He stepped into that gap, church, and he reconciled us back to God. He put us in right standing, standing with him. Now, those who accept the gift of salvation are now in the process of sanctification, the process of becoming holy. Now, there's five things that we need to understand about sanctification. Number one, sanctification is a work of God. Praise God, right? Because if it was up to us to reach God's standard, we probably wouldn't reach it. We'll be in trouble. Number two, the goal and the measure of sanctification is Christ's likeness. Okay, cool. So the goal is to be more like Jesus. And, and we can measure our sanctification by how much we reflect Christ's character. Now, number three, sanctification is an ongoing process. And this is where we start to mess up God's work, church. Because remember, number one, sanctification is a work of God, but this is where we start to mess up God's work. See, some of us intentionally or unintentionally, we look at, self, we look at, we look at sanctification as though it is a one-time event instead of an ongoing process. We accept the gift of salvation, but then we just get stuck. We don't mature in our walks with Jesus because Kessler's church, sanctification requires our cooperation. That's number four. Because if it was up to God and only God, all of us would be the best versions of ourselves, right? But sanctification requires our cooperation. And a lot of times, even though we accept Jesus as our Savior, we don't allow him to be Lord in our lives. And we, 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 we govern our own lives, and we live in ways that work against what God is trying to do in us, that work, that work against uh, what he's trying to do in us instead of living our lives in a way that work with what God is trying to do. Number four, or number five, the primary instrument of sanctification is the word of God. So there's a lot of things that God uses to sanctify us. But the word of God is unique because apart from us, 
His word is the only thing that he says that he's one with. He said that I am my word. He doesn't say that about prayer. He doesn't say that about uh, worship. He doesn't say that about uh, um, serving or, or fasting. He only says that about his word. He says that I am one with my word. His word is the primary instrument of sanctification. And it's not simply do you read it, but are you continually trying to align your life with God's word? Do you look at every decision you make and measure it up to the ruler of God's word? See, church, we won't reach sinless perfection on this side of eternity. But here's the question. What version of yourself is going to leave the earth when you go and meet your maker? Am I going to be DeRay 1.0, 2.0, 3.0, or 4.0? Am I going to put in the work and live my life in a way that works with God and leads me to become the person that he is calling me to be? Or will I never discover that person? Will I never discover the husband he's calling me to be? Will I never discover the father that he is calling me to be? Philippians 2, verse 12 through 13 says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence, but much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. But here's the problem, church. Oftentimes, we reduce God's good purpose to us just being saved. When God's good purpose involves us becoming the person that he's called us to be. It is God who works in us, but sometimes we work against what God is trying to do. Let's look at the instruction given to us again in verse 12. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. See, the phrase work out in the Greek means to continually work to bring something to completion or fruition. But I think, church, sometimes we work to maintain instead of work to bring to completion, instead of work to bring to maturity. Our salvation isn't simply just eternal life insurance. It is a call for us to become more like Jesus through the process of sanctification. And we're supposed to do it with fear and trembling. We're supposed to have a healthy fear of offending God and a awe and a respect for his majesty and holiness. In closing, church, I want to read to you one last verse. 
It's Romans 12 and 1. It says, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. See, church, I, begin, I believe that it all begins with a proper reverence of God and his holiness. How do you know that you don't have a proper reverence of God and his holiness? I'm going to give you two scenarios. When you have areas of sin in your life, for which you have no conviction. Some of us may have things in our lives that we know is wrong. We know it's out of bounds. We know that it's outside of God's will, God's word, God's design. But still we carry out that desire. And it hardly bothers us that it displeases a holy God. You have no conviction in that area of your life. And I'm not talking about condemnation. The Bible says that there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. I'm talking about biblical conviction. When the Holy Spirit makes you aware of your sin and you respond with godly sorrow, which is the first step towards repentance. And if that's you in here today, God is calling you to do just that, to repent, to turn from your sin, to receive his forgiveness, and to allow him to continue to sanctify your heart. Some of us don't have the proper reverence of God, and it can be seen in the way that we pursue God in the way that we go after him. Some of us may do just enough to maintain our faith. But we don't pursue God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind. The first and the greatest commandment is to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our mind. But I submit to you today, church, that we cannot do that if we're not in continual pursuit of him. We cannot do that if we don't have a proper reverence for God and his holiness. Church, I really hope that today you didn't just hear me but you heard God. And what I want to do right now is create a space for God to continue to speak to you. So if you'll bow your heads. In a moment, I'm going to pray, but at this time, I want you to fix your heart on Jesus. I want you to Ask the Lord, what are you saying to me, God?
What do you want me to do, God? How do you want me to respond to your word today? Search our hearts, Lord. Make us aware of what it is you want us to see in this moment. Maybe God is calling you to repent. that's you, do it now. I don't need to know who you are. It is between you and God. But don't leave this place and not get it right with him. something in your marriage. Maybe there's a relationship in your life where something's not right. Maybe there's something in your life that you need to let go. You need to sacrifice in order to get closer to Jesus. Father, we come before you with a heart of repentance, Lord. Knowing that we all fall short of your glory. We all have sinned. But we thank you that your love covers a multitude of sin. You said that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive So we come before you with a heart of repentance, Lord. Whatever it may be, Lord, whether it's in thought, whether it's in the things that we say, whether it's in the things that we do, whatever it is, Lord, bring it to us. And we ask for your forgiveness, Lord. We thank you for the work of the cross that we can come boldly before your throne of grace. Not in our own righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ. That's how we come before you. Father, I pray that you would stir in the hearts of your people, everyone in here today, everyone watching online, a passion and a zeal to go after you, to pursue you, a desire to become who you've called us to be. Whatever's in the way of that, Lord God, I pray that you make it clear. 
we acknowledge you, Lord, that you are a holy God and that you are calling us to be holy as you are holy. We thank you now. In the mighty name of Jesus, we all said, amen. Amen, church. Now it's our custom to celebrate those who have made decisions today. But I want to take it to another level. I want us to not just celebrate those who made decisions today, but celebrate the God who made the decision possible. So can we, as a family church, with a great sound, can we put our hands together for God? He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is holy. He is good. He is our salvation. He is our love. There is no one like him, church. There is no one like him. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God.